Father, we recognize that it was Your Spirit who breathed the words of Scripture onto the page. That You inspired prophets of old to write these words. We believe and we accept them as the true and inspired words of God. We believe in and we accept, Father, these words as truth. But we also know, Lord, that we have the, the propensity and the capability as humans to bend the truth, uh, to miss the truth, to mess with the truth, to try and make relative what is absolute. And so I just pray tonight, Father, that your Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. Jesus, you referred to your Spirit as the Spirit of truth. And so that's what we seek tonight. And we seek, as always, in the following through of each of these verses, your inspiration, Lord, and your teaching. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you for truth. We choose to walk in it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me. What things had been completed? Well, we just talked about that Sunday, Ezra. And the people had met at the river Ahava. They're in Babylon. They have now made their way, journeyed all the way to Jerusalem. After that three-day fast there at Ahava, they, they made it there. The Lord delivered them. It tells us in verse 31 of chapter 8, the hand of our God was over us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. And we came to Jerusalem. And we remained there for three days. And then the, the gold and the silver and the utensils that were given for the temple were all measured out and weighed out and checked and everything while they were there. And they supported uh, the people in the house of God. We're told at the end of verse 36. And a little bit of time passes here. Not much. This is all happening now within about a year of Ezra arriving. In fact, where we end up tonight is within about nine months. Ezra's not there long. Long enough to, to bring these things to the temple. Long enough then to begin to teach. And you will see the impact of that as we go forward tonight. So when these things have been completed, the princes approached me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land according to their abominations. Those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. The problem began about 600 years earlier. As the children of Israel came into the land under Joshua and his leadership. And the Lord said to them back then, prior to their coming into the land, Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 17, You shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods. And so that you would sin against the Lord your God. God said, when you come into the land, you wipe out, you take out completely all the inhabitants of the land. Why? Two reasons. It was divine judgment for the sin of these inhabitants. That across 400 years, while the people of Israel, the children, were in Egypt in bondage there, during all that time, the Lord, and the indication biblically is the Lord would give the people of Canaan 400 years to repent, to turn around to deny the sinful way that they're living, but they didn't take it. And so as the people come in, He declares divine judgment. He wants them out of the land completely. But it was also divine protection for the children of Israel as God is doing a new thing with these these Israelites, bringing them in, making them a people, giving them a land. 
Divine judgment, divine protection, but Israel didn't follow through. And so, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite and the Termites and on and on. Now, I've joked about that before, but I was thinking today, termites should be right in there with them because that's exactly what these people did. Like termites, they are in the walls of Israel. They are in and among the people. And if you don't deal with termites, they will eat the foundation out from under you. They will eat away your walls. They will cause your house to be desolate if left to their own devices. And that's the problem with these people. All of these ites. 600 years have passed. The people have gone into captivity. They're now back in the land and the ites are still infecting them. Still taking them down. But you might note this in verse 1. For the first time, Egypt is on the list. So not only are the pagans in the land causing problems, but they have imported paganism from Egypt. They've gone back to the place of their original captors from whom the Lord had rescued them, and they're pulling that paganism into the land. How are they doing this? Verse 2. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race, or seed, has intermingled with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost uh, in this unfaithfulness. Gang, it's a picture of sin in the world. Sin in the world and marrying ourselves, connecting ourselves to sin. And the people have done this And the truth is, you cannot make peace with sin. They tried to make peace with the ites in the land. You can't make peace with sin. Because ultimately, it will infiltrate and overcome you. Unless the old seduction is completely eradicated and driven out of our lives, it will come back. Like all of the ites. And sin has a way of infiltrating that which seems good and right in life. Who would blame these Israelites? Some of these foreign women were beautiful. They probably got to talking around one of the wells one afternoon. One of them possibly to one of these women and struck up a conversation. Man, they just seem to have something in common. They, they seem to get along. There was a connection made. Marriage. You fall in love. You marry? What's wrong with that? Why does that happen to be such a big deal? Well, the Lord said in Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, To the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons. You shall not take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. This is not a statement against intermarriage, gang. This is not the Bible's way of being anti-interracial marriage. That's not what the Lord is proclaiming here. This is a statement that we completely miss and Christians, by and large, have a tendency to jump wholeheartedly into. And that is interfaith marriages. That's what God is against. Interfaith marriages. Because the result is the faith of the one is typically undermined by the lack of faith or the different faith of the other. Either that or you go head to head. Some of the ladies in the front row here might say, well, that won't happen to me. Because when I fall in love, my faith will be strong enough. And, and actually, I think the girls in the front row probably are gonna, all going to choose Christian guys stronger in faith than they are, right? Right, good. 
But there are those who would say, it won't happen to me. I have a strong faith. It's not a problem. I can marry whoever I want because my faith is strong. And I would say, really, stronger than Solomon's? Builder of the first temple, about whom it was written in 1 Kings 11.4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after gods, after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. When Solomon was young, he was strong. He thought he could handle it. When Solomon grew old, the old seductress wore him out. I am finding at this point in my life to be a new parent at the age of 45 is a lot more work, just energy-wise, than it was when I was 20. I have to be. Now, I've got more wisdom than I had when I was 20, but I have got to be more purposeful. I've got to be a little more firm because I get exhausted a whole lot more easily. They know how to wear you out, don't they, moms and dads? Sin is that way. I'm not comparing our kids to sin. Well, I guess I kind of am, but I don't mean it that way. Sin will wear you out. And if we don't deal with these things early on, as we get older, it's not easier. It can be harder, which is why you put them out of the land early on in your life. As soon as possible, as soon as we're aware of a sin, don't let it hang around. Now, if there's any parallel verse in the New Testament to the book of Ezra and this story, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. We have read this verse over and over and over again, and yet it is so applicable. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? And this is sound wisdom from the Lord. Oh, but I love Him! Oh, but I love her. God knows that's the problem. Is the binding together, binding together of two people, specifically in marriage, and it will either it will do one of two things in, in marriage. And those of you, you know what I'm talking about. You have been married a while. Either the other person's faith will underpin your faith, or it will undermine your faith. It's either or. It's rare that I see in a marriage. Where one with faith and one without, but the one with faith is, is just fine, just cruising along. It is always, always, always a difficulty. And so the Israelites are intermarrying. Race isn't the issue as much as faith is the issue. And as they begin to intermarry with the people, Ezra comes back. Have you ever been disappointed by Christians? By the church? you ever gone to maybe a new church and you've been there a little while and oh, it's perfect. It's heaven on earth. It's the best church in the world. This is the place. And within a matter of months you start to realize the pastor can be a jerk. <laughs> there are people here who are not as forthright as they act on Sundays. Ezra comes back to the land high hopes. Man, the Lord has blessed them. The good hand of the Lord has been with him. And then this news hits. And it's not just a handful of the people, it's priests and Levites who are intermarrying outside of the faith of Israel. Verse 3, When I heard about this matter, Ezra writes, I tore my garment and my robe, I pulled some of my hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. And then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, they gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening Offering The word appalled, shamaim, it means astounded. I mean, he is shocked and desolated. 
You don't pull the hair out of your beard and out of your head on a good day. And Ezra is just, he's beside himself with grief. It absolutely floored him. It's not what he expected to find when he came back into the land. Oh, he knew the Lord was sending him back to stir up the people. But to find this out? This, by the way, tonight is an emotional teaching. Now, at a cursory glance, you might notice most of the last part of chapter 10 is just names. This is one of the most emotional teachings that we've had. And by far the most emotional teaching in all the book of Ezra. And it begins here with Ezra. Upset, grieving. It's emotional. Let me just share with you, ministry often is emotional. That's the hardest part about it because our human sin choices always bring about painful messes. And that's what we end up having to help each other with is is the bad choices we made. And now the mess is here and how do we deal with this now? You know, that that 35-year-old I was 10 years ago made some stupid choices. Why would he do that to me? And the 25-year-old I was 20 years ago, what a moron. How could he do the things then that are affecting me now? Sin catches up. And it's messy. Now remember, Ezra's name means helper. And Ezra is a picture for us of the Holy Spirit. It is undeniable as we go through and we look at these things. We began to see that. He's a picture and type of the Spirit. And it continues tonight because Ezra is beside himself with grief. Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Did you realize, did you know that God's Spirit was capable of garment-tearing, hair-ripping, gut-wrenching grief like that of Ezra? One more clue here that the Holy Spirit is not a spiritual force or an energy or a power, but is a real persona, an absolute uh, aspect of our triune God hard to explain yes I can't put into words exactly how that works Father, Son, Holy Spirit all God all unique but all one but we need to understand here about the Holy Spirit that like Ezra He grieves He is capable of of great sorrow what is it that, that makes Him grieve? Compromise remember when you give your life to Jesus He gives you His Spirit And from that day forward, His Spirit is with you, indwells you, walks with you. You don't hide from, you don't leave the Holy Spirit at home when you go to the bar. You don't leave the Holy Spirit at home when you're out with friends doing things that you wouldn't want the Spirit to see. He's right there. And it grieves Him when we compromise our faith. It grieves Him when we just put up kind of a loose, weak tolerance It grieves Him when sealed, washed followers of Jesus Christ get mixed up in the world. The Holy Spirit is also portrayed as a dove throughout Scripture. As a dove. You know that doves are one of the few animals that mate for life. One of the few animals in the animal kingdom. A dove will mate for life. And Jesus said about the Spirit in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. Not when you call on Him. Not when you're worshiping. Not when you're out with Christian brothers and sisters. Forever. 
Like the dove that mates for life. But when a dove loses its mate, it mourns. You've no doubt heard the sound of, of a dove, sometimes called the cooing of the dove or the mournful sound. There was a dove that lived out behind our house of all places in Anaheim, California. It's mostly concrete. I don't know where it found a nice little place to roost. But this, this dove, every morning I could hear the sound of the dove. I woke up to it. He was my little personal alarm clock. And it was the same sound. It was kind of a... You've heard it? The mourning of a dove. The dove will mourn when its mate is lost. So the dove is once again a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit who mourns, who grieves over the choices that we make. It breaks His heart. By the way, understand that the Holy Spirit doesn't grieve towards you, but grieves for you. It's not a judgment. It's not like, oh, Crawford, he is so stupid. He's doing it again. Father, do I have to stay with this guy because I'm put out? No, it's Rick. No, don't do that. You don't understand. This is, this is painful for me because I know it's going to be painful for you. It breaks his heart. So he grieves. He mourns. Just as we see Ezra grieving and mourning here. Now, I don't even think the people realized up to this point how deep they were in. I don't think they understood how, how bad it was until Ezra came. Often we don't until the Holy Spirit comes and taps us on the heart and says, look at what you're doing. Look at what's going on. I mean, the people have been keeping the sacrifices. They've been keeping the temple, the festivals. They, they came to temple. It, it's easy to show up at church and make all the right gestures and fool yourself. All the while the Holy Spirit is grieving. Micah chapter 6 verse 6 says, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings and and yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. How many times have we been told in the Scriptures He doesn't delight in sacrifice and burnt offerings? That's not the deal. That's not what He's interested in. He's interested in you. In your heart. In walking with you. And you walking humbly with Him. Religious observance, gang, it's not the same thing as right relationship with the Lord. And even though the people didn't realize it here, God did. And so He sent Ezra, as so often He will send His Spirit to tap us. Wake us up. John 14.26 tells us the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, Jesus says, He'll teach you all things and He will bring to remembrance all that I said to you. Jesus said in John 16, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Provide you not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Now listen to this. It says, And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is conviction. To bring about conviction, not only among believers, but in the world. The reason why you, at some point in your life, made a decision to follow Jesus, if in fact you did, is because the Holy Spirit of the living God convicted you to do so. It's amazing to me, we don't even originate our faith. God originates our faith. And the Spirit 
opens our eyes. How does He do that? How does He convict of sin and righteousness and judgment? Convicting the world, but also convicting us in our hearts. How does the Holy Spirit go about that? Well, there, there are a number of ways, and I had about two pages of notes on this, but there was too much else we had to do tonight. So let me just throw these out to you, and you can think about these and, and, and study this out yourselves if you'd like to. A number of ways that the Holy Spirit speaks to us and convicts us. He speaks by stimulating our conscience. He'll stimulate the conscience, the very sense of right and wrong. He'll just kind of, you know, you get that sense, I don't think I should be doing this right now. I'm not sure that's the right choice. We probably shouldn't rent that film tonight. He will stimulate the conscience. He will send counsel in the form of of a believer in Christ, usually. Someone will come along and go, Russ, um, I know you're planning to do such and such, but I just got to tell you, I'm concerned about that. And Russ and I have been working this out, so he'll be okay. (laughs) Sending counsel, stimulating conscience, speaking clearly, number three. Yes, I believe the Holy Spirit of the living God speaks clearly and audibly today. Okay, Pastor. Then why haven't I heard it? If he speaks so loud and clear, well, let me ask you, why haven't you heard it? Have you stopped to listen? Is your life quiet enough to hear the Spirit? The vast majority of Americans are too loud, too busy, too overcome with noise to hear the Lord speaking. There is not a single verse you can point to in Scripture that tells me the Holy Spirit of the Lord ceased speaking to people. We read Him speaking. We see Jesus speaking to Paul on the road to Damascus. We see God speaking to people throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, throughout the Christian Scriptures. But somehow we think 2,000 years later that He just doesn't talk to us anymore. He just wants us to read. I don't see that. He speaks clearly. He's not known for interruptions. So he's not going to come barely. See, this is what most of us want. I want to be walking down the road, listening to my iPod, singing as loud as possible, listening to the traffic go by, and I want the Holy Spirit to say, Hey, Rick, how are you doing today? Come on, speak to me! And he's saying, I am. Would you just be quiet and see? How do we hear Him for all the noise? He is not a carnival barker in the circus of our lives. Okay. Step right up and hear a message from God. That is not... It's not how I see Him speaking in Scripture. What is that consummate example we see with Elijah in the cave? The still, quiet voice. Shh. Be still and know that I am God. If we will but quiet ourselves... The Lord says in Jeremiah 29, verse 12, You will call upon Me and come and pray to Me, and I will listen to you. You will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. The Lord puts the onus on you to quiet down and listen. How will I know it's the Spirit speaking when it's really Him? Well, you've got to become accustomed to His voice. Should be a song about that. I've grown accustomed to his voice. <laughs> sort of makes the day begin. <laughs> How do I do that? How did 
become accustomed to the Spirit's voice. You Bible students, you know this. There is a primary way the Spirit speaks conviction. Look at verse 4 again. It tells us, Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me. Everyone who trembled at the words. Ezra had been preaching the word. The people had been hearing the word. And as the word was spoken and the truth came out, the people realized their sin and they gathered to Ezra a picture of the Holy Spirit. Because the word has that impact. And I absolutely believe, gang, the word of God is the primary tool that the Spirit of God uses to convict us. Not saying the only tool, but is the primary tool. The helper brings the word, the hearts of the people are stirred. Bible students, remember the parallel. I mentioned this a week or two back. The parallel between Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, and Daniel chapter 9. Same thing happens in all three chapters of these three separate unique books. Here in Ezra chapter 9, the, the word is spoken and the people are convicted and they are trembling and they come and gather around to Ezra. Nehemiah chapter 9. In fact, turn over there. It's the next book over, so it shouldn't be hard to find. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, On the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners. This is later on, so this is the story that's coming in our next study. Separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, six hours. And I'm already feeling so much better about tonight. They read from the Word for six hours straight. And then it says, and for another fourth of the day, another six hours, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. The teaching even precedes the confession because for six hours they're being convicted. And then what do they do? They worship, they confess, because the Word is the primary tool the Holy Spirit uses to convict the heart of truth, of sin and righteousness and judgment. The book of Daniel, chapter 9, I'll just read this to you. Verse 2, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He's in Bible study. Daniel's reading Jeremiah. And as he reads, he says, I gave attention to the Lord to seek Him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Because he's convicted. How did Daniel get convicted? He was in the Word. And the Holy Spirit uses the tool of the Word of God to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. You're meditating on a verse. You've just opened your Bible and you're studying a little bit. You're finally quiet. And suddenly your conscience begins to prickle a little bit with the realization that this is a direct word for you. This is something you needed to hear. Or perhaps... You're listening to a sermon or a Bible study. Maybe not even a particularly good one. And suddenly, your heart becomes moved. I've had more than one person in the last several years here at the bridge weep through Bible study. I, I kid you not, or on a Sunday morning, just tears flowing while we're reading the Word. And, and, and it threw me the first few times I saw this. It was kind of like... Is it that bad? <laughs> I'm so sorry. What did I, did I, was it something I said? Yes, it was. It was in the Word. And the Spirit will use the Word in that way to convict us. 
to move us. There is a dynamic here for any and everyone who wants to hear God speak. Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered to the Helper. You see how that works? They trembled at the words and they gathered to the Helper. We tremble at the Word and it draws us to the Spirit. We gather to His Spirit. Ezekiel 36, verse 27, the Lord says, I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. How's that, Lord? When My Spirit is upon you. Wait, I thought you said the Word comes before the Spirit. Sometimes it does. Sometimes the Spirit comes before the Word. It's that dynamic interplay of both. Do you tremble at the Word? Or as John Corson asked, are you troubled by it? He says some people tremble at the Word, some people are troubled by the Word. I read this article, and I'd like to thank God Almighty is what it's entitled. It's by Tom Maker in Useless Today. It was just last week. Talking about, um, talking about sports and how God is used in athletics so much in our culture. Listen to this. He says, October is the sports fan's promised land. America's pastime, baseball, enters its sprint toward the World Series. And the sport that is America's pastime in more than just name, football, has fans transfixed from coast to coast. Anyone who watches pro and college football or follows the drama of the baseball playoffs can't help but notice something else that often competes for our attention amid the passes, pitches, and home runs. Can you hear me okay with the... I'll try and stop when it gets too loud, but if, it's, if you can stick with me, we'll just keep rolling here. The one thing that competes, he says, is religion. His players point skyward to Almighty after reaching the end zone or home plate. Star athletes voice thanks and praise to their Savior after a big win. And sports heroes use their media spotlight to promote the Christian message. Well, these are the outward signs of a faith surge that has made big-time sports one of the most outwardly religious sectors of American culture. And that's true. We've seen it. Far less visible but worth knowing about are the infrastructure and strategy of the sports world evangelicalism that powers these pious displays. Athletes' expressions of Christian faith reflect decades of hard work by evangelical ministries to convert players and coach them to use their stature to promote a particular version of conservative Christianity. Christian chaplains are embedded with all the teams in professional baseball, basketball, and football, and many college teams as well, to provide religious counseling, Bible studies, and chapel services. Given the misbehavior and self-seeking that plague sports, who could, uh, who could doubt the benefit of bringing moral guidance and a broader perspective to locker rooms and clubhouses? However, he goes on, but Jesus' representatives in sports aren't just practicing faith. See, at this point I got interested in the story. What do you mean? They're leveraging sports popularity to promote a message and doctrine that is out of sync with the diverse communities that support franchises and with the unifying civic role that we expect of our team. Further on he says, should we, but should we be pleased that the civic resource known as our team a resource supported by the diverse whole through our ticket buying, game watching, and tax paying. Should we be pleased that it's being leveraged by a one truth evangelical campaign that has little appreciation for the diverse beliefs of the rest of us? Are you following? This guy now has a problem. 
with Christianity and sports because he calls it a one truth evangelical campaign. Duh. Yeah. That's what we are. One truth, man. There's only one. He goes on and says there's a shadow side to this. If their take on God and truth and life is the only right one which their creed boldly states, then everyone else is wrong. Yes. Tom Krattenmeyer is troubled by the Word of God. He's troubled by the Word. He's not troubled by evangelicalism because evangelicals embedded in sports or wherever, all we're doing is saying, this is the truth. All we're doing is quoting what we have been told all our lives. And I hope it's more than what you've been told. It's what you have read and studied and come to know and understand as absolute truth. What's that? Well, it's verses like Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. I don't hear diversity there. One baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One God. Not a multiplicity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There is a one truth message in Christianity. Jesus is it. But like this sports writer says, well, that's a problem. That doesn't reflect the diversity of the world in which we live. That's a shadowy underbelly, he calls it. Come on, dude. He is troubled by the Word of God. It bothers him. It bothers a lot of people. It bothers anybody who doesn't like the idea of absolute truth. It bothers anybody who wants to think that there are multiple ways to get saved. Multiple ways to heaven. Jesus didn't leave that option open. I am the way. Those who tremble at His Word are drawn to His Spirit. Are drawn to the truth. I hope you are among those and I suspect you are who tremble at His Word. Verse 5, But at the evening offering I arose, He says, from my humiliation. My humiliation, He calls that. Amazing. Even with my garment and my robe torn, I fell on my knees. I stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. You know, Ezra is not embarrassed here. This is out in the open. This is the the, the evening worship, the evening offering. All these people are gathered around. And here's Ezra. Robe, clothing torn. Hair torn. Eyes red, face wet. And he gets down on his hands and his knees and he lifts up his hands and he begins to pray. He says, Oh my God, I am ashamed. And I'm embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. He says, We're drowning in our sin. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands and to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to open shame as it is to this day. This amazes me. What is Ezra so ashamed about? He didn't do this. This is not his sin. This is the sin of the people. Ezra was not intermarrying. He didn't have an interfaith wife. It's the people's fault. Yeah. They're the sinners. (laughs) They're the problem. 
The woman gave me the fruit and I did eat of it. Though the serpent deceived me and so I ate. Ezra doesn't throw the blame. Ezra takes the blame. Ezra is not at fault here, but he draws it to himself. He owns the sin of his people. He walks it out. Well, boy, you know, I'll tell you what, if we did more of that in the church, we'd be a whole lot less judgmental toward each other and more loving if we said, man, you know what? Dan's struggles are my struggles. We share this walk before the Lord. And when he hurts because of sin, I hurt because of sin. And we struggle this out together. But there's more, gang. Ezra bears his people's sins in the same way the Holy Spirit does. What? Do you realize that when we sin, the Holy Spirit bears that shame? Where do you get that? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you're a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So you take your body out and you're doing something else. You're moving this temple around and you're in a place of sin. Guess what? The Holy Spirit's dwelling in that place that you have attached to sin. And the shame that you feel, He feels as well. No wonder He grieves. 1 Corinthians 6.15 Don't you know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Don't you know the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For the Lord says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So therefore, if I join myself to the Lord, and then I go connect myself to a prostitute, or to some sin choice, I'm taking the spirit with me. And my helper now is bearing that shame right alongside me. If I dishonor my body, I dishonor the Spirit of God, just as Ezra himself is dishonored and ashamed and appalled at the sin of his people, sin that he did not commit himself. Whatever I get into, I bring the Holy Spirit into with me. But how can God, being perfect, bear the shame for my sin? Isn't that what He did? Isn't that what He did on the cross? He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's grace. Look at verse 8. But now for a brief moment, grace. I would encourage you to highlight that, circle it, underline it, capitalize it. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. This is great. For even in shame, the Helper speaks about grace. Even when he's appalled and horrified at the sin and and sorrowful about it, Ezra is talking about grace. We've been given grace. And that's what the Spirit does. He reminds us of grace. There, by the way, are a couple of grace-filled prophetic insights to note here. Fantastic stuff. Note the phrase, an escaped remnant, there in verse 8. He says, he has left us an escaped remnant. What's he talking about? Well, Israel, of course. He illuminates an amazing truth about Israel. They are an escaped remnant. Somehow, amazingly, Ezra says, we escaped captivity. We're still here. We're back in the land. We exist. I've said this so many times, no other people group has existed the length of time Israel has existed. 
No other people group has, has existed beyond 200 years once they're kicked out of their land. Israel, nearly 2,000 years. And they still exist, having escaped Satan's attempt to destroy them and thus undermine the stated plans of God. Well, what do you mean? I've told you, you know why Israel is, why Satan is gunning for Israel constantly? Because to destroy them is to mess up the prophecies that God has yet to fulfill for Israel and in Israel. So take them out and you destroy the prophecy. And what Satan doesn't understand is that prophecy is not a possibility, it is an absolute. He can't take them out. He will not take them out. They are an escaped remnant. Verse 9 goes on and says, We are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us, watch this, to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And that statement finds modern fulfillment today in the Kotel. What's the Kotel? The Western Wall. Read this verse while standing in front of the Western Wall and you will tremble at the Word of God. He has given us a wall. A wall in Jerusalem. The Western Wall came back under Jewish sovereignty again in 1967. The Jewish men, the soldiers, great soldiers of the Israeli Defense Forces, on the Temple Mount and around the Wailing Wall, weeping with joy that they were back in this place and had sovereignty over it once again. And Jews today see that wall, called the Kotel, they see that wall as as a remarkable symbol of their history and their hope. And their hope. He's left us a wall. There is still something here that says God is faithful and has not forgotten us. So the escaped remnant of Israel continues to be one of the greatest proofs of the Bible, of God's grace and His faithfulness through all history. But there's another prophetic word in verse 8 going back that speaks an even greater grace. He left us an escaped remnant and He gave us a peg in His holy place. You know, we, we have pegs on the walls in our uh, laundry room and our coats hang on those. We have more pegs in the, in the garage now because we've got more coats than we had pegs so we've got to add more pegs. We've got pegs in the wall and that's what we hang our coats on and what Ezra is saying is He gave us a peg in the holy place something on which to hang our hope. A peg in his holy place. The word peg in the Hebrew, you might have guessed, yateid, is literally nail. He has given us a nail. A nail in the holy place on which they hang their hopes, just as all of our hopes are hung on Christ by the nails that went through him to the cross. Isaiah 22, verse 22. Isaiah writes, The Lord speaking, I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Who's he talking about there? Well, if you need a little help. Revelation 3 7, Jesus said, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Talking about himself. Okay? So Isaiah 22 22 is talking about Jesus, and in verse 23. The Lord says, I will drive him like a peg, like a nail in a firm place. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. Ezra says, the Lord has given us a peg. He's given us a nail in the holy place. No doubt Ezra didn't even realize the prophetic, messianic statement that he was making. 
And by the way, what does that peg do? In verse 8, that peg in His holy place, it enlightens our eyes and it grants a little reviving in our bondage. Isn't that what the peg that drove through Jesus at the cross do, does for us? Isn't that, it enlightens our, opens our eyes to the truth and revives us, brings us back to life. Paul writes in Romans 8.10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. An escaped remnant, Ezra prays, and a peg in the holy place. Remarkable. Verse 10. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end, and with their impurity. Man, I I was reading this today, and you know what popped into my head? This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York... I started thinking, this verse could be about America today. The land that we have begun to fill with impurities from one end to the other. So now, verse 12, Do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, which Christians, listen, don't seek the peace and the prosperity of this culture. You're not going to find it here. This is not where we get our peace. This world is not going to secure our prosperity. That you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. So, so he's quoting, as he's praying to the Lord, he's quoting the prophets to say, don't do these things. Don't seek their peace, their prosperity. Don't bring their daughters into your families or send your sons out to the, to the daughters of others. Don't do these things and you'll have an inheritance. In verse 13, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant, there it is again, as this. Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there's no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, For we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt for no one can stand before you because of this. He's weeping, he's praying, and he's he's getting to a point of hopelessness. Oh, the peg is in the holy place. The escaped remnants in the land. But Ezra's saying, God has done all this and, and how do we repay Him? We go out and we marry in to the foreigners of the land. And he's grieving. By the way, did you catch that in verse 13? He said, You, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve. What does he mean? We've been punished less than we deserve to be punished. You might want to point that out next time you hear someone whining and complaining saying, How could God do this to me? You don't know the half of what you deserve for God to do to you. Well, I don't deserve that. Yes, you probably do. And far more. 
Lamentations chapter 3, verse 39, Jeremiah said, Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? <laughs> you know what we deserve? We deserve to be pegged for our sin. That's what we deserve. We deserve to get nailed for it. That's not what we get. Psalm 103, verse 10, He, he has not dealt with us according to our sins or have rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. That is not what we deserve, but that is what we get by the grace of Jesus Christ and our God and Father. Ezra's grieving here as the Spirit grieves. He's interceding as the Spirit intercedes. But watch this. Something starts to happen in and among the people. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. This is an emotional scene here. Ezra's beside himself. The people are beside themselves. And you know what drew the people to that kind of weeping? It wasn't because Ezra preached at them. It was because Ezra prayed for them. We could take a page from Ezra's playbook here and learn something. It's rarely when we preach at people that they repent. It's when we pray for them. It's when we walk with them. Ezra takes it to the Lord and something breaks here in the people. It's always easier to preach at than to pray for, isn't it? I can preach at you all day long. Come up and tell me what your sin is and I will tell you what you did to deserve your punishment. I can do that. Praying for, interceding for, crying out for. You know why it's hard? Because it has to tug on your heart. It is emotional. Intercession is one of the most exhausting challenging, difficult ministries in the church today. And I, for one, am thankful we have people like Les and our prayer team who make intercession though it sometimes wipes them out to do it. Verse 2. Well, Shechaniah, the son of Yahiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, we've been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. I love this. Someone now comes to Ezra and encourages him, a brother. And he says, there's hope for Israel. There is hope for the escaped remnant. And by the way, even today when things seem hopeless, as Iran and the Middle East bear down on Israel and things seem hopeless for Israel, that escaped remnant still has a hope. Jeremiah 14.8 Oh, hope of Israel, its Savior in time of distress. There's one God and Savior. There's one God, one Savior. And that's Jesus. And Jesus is the hope of Israel. But Shechaniah, this man, his name means dweller with Yahweh. I like that, Shechaniah. Comes up with a plan for this mixed up people. But they're going to have to make some tough choices. Watch this, verse 3. So now, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children. According to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise! For this matter is your responsibility. 
But we will be with you. Be courageous and act. You're the high priest, Ezra. You're the one who's got to lead out. But this is right to do, and we will support you in it. Stand up. So verse 5, Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all Israel take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Yehohanan, the son of Eliashib. Although he went there, he did not eat bread or drink water, for he was mourning or fasting over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. There they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that whoever would not come within three days, which you might remember from Sunday, it's the time of testimony, three days. It's also the distance pretty much anywhere in the land it would take to get to Jerusalem. Three days travel. If you're up in the north of the Galilee, if you're down in the Negev, three days travel to get up to Jerusalem. So they allow three days according to the counsel of the leaders, verse 8, and the elders. If anyone doesn't show up, all his possessions should be forfeited and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. In other words, everyone, you show up or you're kicked out. They're not playing games here. Verse 9, So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. It's the rainy season in Israel. It's probably around December at this time. It was was December, our equivalent, because it's, it's there in the ninth month. They're trembling because of the matter and because of the heavy rain. I have never in my life been more soaked through my skin than I was on that day it rained when our tour group was in Israel. I foolishly tossed my leather jacket at the last minute into my backpack to take to Israel on that trip. I didn't use it one time, but that morning it was a little cold. And I was thankful I had my leather jacket because it was warm enough to get me through a snowy, sleety day. But the snow turned to rain, and the rain was coming down in sheets. I mean, just buckets. I mean, cascading down the the stone stairways throughout the old city. And that leather, leather jacket, by about noon, was sopping wet. Right through it. And we were all just shivering. Do you remember lunch that day, Spence? We found a little place to, to huddle together and get out of the weather and try and dry off. And I was sitting over there going, I love coming to Israel. I, really, I'm so glad y'all came. Soaked through to the skin. Because when it rains, it pours in Jerusalem. But the true issue here wasn't precipitation. It was the precipitous move of the people of God. They gathered in there and gang the floodgates of repentance and confession and spiritual motivation are wide open. They're responding. Because nothing soaks the skin. Nothing gets through like godly sorrow does. When the spirit grieves. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, The sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Godly sorrow emanates from God, begins with God. When the Spirit of God grieves within me, I become convicted. The floodgates open. But gang, I don't sit and wallow in guilt. I don't sit there saying, Ugh! Man, I'm such a bad, so lousy person. I can't believe it. That's the sorrow of the world. And that gets you nowhere. The sorrow of God brings you to your knees saying, Lord, forgive me. 
Restore me. Restore, as David said, unto me the joy of my salvation. Godly sorrow produces action. Verse 10. Then Ezra the priest stood up and he said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will. And separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. You see, confession is nothing without action. Repentance is hot air unless there is follow through that, that comes after it. As with the woman who was caught in adultery and thrown on the ground before Jesus, and Jesus looks at her, and and He says, you know what, whoever is without sin, go ahead and start stoning her. And they all leave. And at the end of the story, He's standing there looking at her, and He says, is there anyone here to condemn you? And she says, no. And what does He say? Go your way and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. There's your forgiveness. Now don't go back to the same thing. Ezra says, make confession and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. And then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, that's right. As you have said, it is our duty to do. But there are many people. A lot of sin. (laughs) And it's the rainy season and we're not able to stand in the open. Nor can the task be done in one or two days for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly. And let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each city until the fierce anger of the Lord of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. They come up with a plan. We can't do this all at once right here. So we'll go back to our cities, you send leaders to each city, and we will make confession and we will put away these wives, these foreign wives. We'll do it as soon as we can, as time permits here. We will take care of this and so, and so alleviate this great sin. Verse 15, Only Yonatan, the son of Asahel, and Yaziah, the son of Tikva, opposed this with Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supporting them. So we got four names of the naysayers right there. And any time we see a move of the Spirit, there is always someone who's opposed. There's always someone who stands up and says, I don't think that's such a good idea to go down that road. And these four guys, they mouth off, and so they are forever listed here as the four who opposed seeking righteousness. I think that's wonderful. Verse 16, but the exiles did so. The exiles did so? Did what? They put away the foreign wives. And Ezra, the priest, selected men who were heads of the father's households for each of the father's households, all of them by name, so they convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate the matter. They finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month, took them a couple months to to take care of that and among the sons of the priests verse 18 who married foreign wives were found of the sons of Yeshua remember Yeshua the high priest you're telling me Yeshua's sons sinned in this matter yeah so do Yeshua's sons today (laughs) we're not perfect just forgiven right we still struggle with sin we're still children of Jesus 
we still repent. We still confess. We still come back to Him. The sons of Yeshua, the son of Yotzadak and his brothers, Maasiah, Eliezer, Yarib, and Gedaliah, they pledged to put away their wives and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. Now the rest of the chapter, verse 20-43, through 43, lists all of those who had intermarried. We see down in verse 23, um, there are more sons down until verse 23, and then it's sons of Levites, and then it's sons of the singers in verse 24, and of the gatekeepers. And sons of Israel, verse 25, listening all the way down. And finally, we come down to verse 44. You can go ahead and read and speak these names aloud to yourself if you'd like. Verse 44, all these had married foreign wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And this concludes the book of Ezra, but hang on. This book seems to end awfully abruptly. It's strange to me, as these foreign marriages end abruptly, we're left with three difficult questions. How do we handle this? Why does the book end so abruptly, first of all? And secondly, why does it leave such an embarrassing list? (laughs) The last thing in the book of Ezra is the list of all the idiots who married foreign wives. Great. Why is that the last thing here in this book? And number three... Did they really divorce their wives and dump their children? Why does the book, let's consider these quickly, why does the book end so abruptly? First of all, because the story is not finished. The story is not concluded. We come to the end of the book of Ezra, we read verse 44, and the indication is there is still work to be done. Ezra is still there with the people. Righteousness is still being called for. They are still moving forward. There's another book in Scripture that ends almost as abruptly, leaving you kind of hanging. The book of Acts, chapter 28, verse 30, tells us Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. And then what happened? What happened, Paul? Luke, tell us. Nothing. It just ends. Paul's cruising along, you know, he's... Interesting. What is the book of Acts about? It's called the Acts of the Apostles. I think that's a misnomer. It should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is the one at work in the book of Acts. And so, truly, if it is indeed the Acts of the Holy Spirit as we see it, it's interesting to me that the book of Ezra describes the work of the Holy Spirit while the book of Acts details the work of the Holy Spirit and both books end without end. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is still at work. Because He is still working on us. Because even when we make decisions to be righteous before the Lord, to put away the foreign obstacles and the sin in our life, even after that, the Holy Spirit doesn't go, good, I'm out of here. The Lord said He would be with us forever. And so even though we come to the final verse, the story of Ezra, the story of the Helper, the story of the Holy Spirit is continuing on with us and in us and through us even today. The Holy Spirit is going forward. He is still at large. He's still inside. And He's still working in this world. Praise God, because without Him we'd be in serious trouble. Why does this book that ends so abruptly, why does it leave such an embarrassing list? Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And isn't the Lord into forgiveness? In fact, isn't it the truth that anywhere in Scripture that someone comes and confesses and repents of their sin that they are forgiven? So why are these men listed? I borrow this from John Corson. He did have the answer, I believe, for this one. He said this list is not about condemnation. It's about commendation. This is a commendable list. Now, the little list back there in verse 15 of the naysayers, that's not the list you want to be on. But I'll tell you what, any one of us should be pleased and proud to be on the list at the end of the book of Ezra. Why? Because they followed through. This is a list of the people who were willing, emotionally, horribly, as difficult as a decision as it was, they were willing to give up to be with the Lord. They pursued righteousness, and so this is a good list, not a bad list. These are among those who are stirred up by the Helper, and they chose to give up that they might stand for the Lord. What are you willing to give up for God? I mean, honestly, how far are you willing to go to say, Lord, you are more important to me than this is, than he is, than she is, than they are? I'm not asking you to divorce husbands and wives. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. But what are you willing to give up and give over to the Lord? Jesus said in Matthew 19.29, Everyone who has forsaken houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But, but leaving a wife for the Lord? Malachi 2.16 tells us God hates divorce. So, question number three, and I think the toughest one, did they really divorce their wives and dump their children? Was this really okay? Some commentators say it wasn't okay. Shechaniah's advice was bad advice and Ezra shouldn't have followed it. It was a bad thing and it was a bad move and I totally disagree. But did they really do it? Listen, in in the story, the foreign wives here were pagan wives. There is provision in the law as seen in the story of Ruth, the Moabite woman. There is provision in the law for a foreign wife to come in and become an Israelite a proselyte Jew, to give faith to the Lord, to be drawn into the family of Israel. So these wives that were being put away were wives who were still bound up in their paganism. Because the law provided, again, for those who would become children of God, like Ruth, they could do so. These were not wives that were that way. These were wives that still hung on to their heritage and their paganism and their heathen beliefs. Still clinging to pagan gods. But I want you to understand something and really think this through. For the men on this list who sent their foreign wives and children away, and yes, the indication is they did send them away, it was not the easy choice. It was not the easy choice. I read verse 44. All these had married foreign wives and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And even as I read that, I could hear my children playing in the house. And I thought... How hard would that be? How hard would it be to be a man of Israel, convicted of my sin, I shouldn't have married her, I love her. (laughs) She's beautiful. She's made my life joyful. We have children together. But she is clinging to her foreign gods. 
and I shouldn't have married her. And along comes Ezra and says, you need to put her away. What? By the way, I don't know if there's anything to this. Malachi uses a word for divorce that is a different word than the word used here. In fact, the word divorce is not used. The word put away is used. And it's a different word. It's the word yatsa in the Hebrew. And it doesn't mean to divorce. It means to be brought out from. In other words, gentlemen, you need to come out from those foreign marriages. So how do they put them away? We just don't know. Did they send them back to their foreign lands and provide for them but say we can't, we can't live together anymore? I, I'm not sure how it worked. I know back in, in verse 3 of chapter 10, it says, Let us now make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children. We need to put them away. By the way, that word, put away, yatsa, is the same word used in Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, when the Lord says He's going to bring the children of Israel out from Egypt, Yatza. Not Yatsi, that's a game, it's a different thing. He's going to bring them out. And this was a bringing out from. What about today? Can a Christian man leave a non-Christian wife? Interesting question. Paul gives an opinion, 1 Corinthians seven twelve. He says, For the rest I say, not the Lord, so this is Paul's opinion, And he's very good about that. He says, I say this, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. That doesn't mean that she's saved or he's saved. It just means that the marriage is honored by God. He accepts that marriage. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, Paul says, let him leave. Hmm. And he goes on to say you're not bound in that marriage anymore. That's interesting. That means if a married Christian man and an unchristian woman are together, and he's pursuing the Lord and she's fed up with it, and she takes off, he is free from the marriage. He's no longer bound to it. Vice versa, same thing. But listen, we, we need to be careful not to get into get so legalistic about ways out <laughs> that we miss what the point is here, and this is what the point is. Matthew Henry said, As to us now, it is certain that sin must be put away. A bill of divorce must be given it, with a revolu- resolution never to have anything more to do with it, though it be as dear as the wife of your heart, Nay, as, as a right eye or, 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 or right hand. Otherwise, there is no pardon, no peace. What he's saying here, and this is the picture, and this is why I believe the Holy Spirit concludes the book of Ezra this way. He paints a picture of divorcing ourselves from sin. As hard as it may be, as painful as it would have been for these men to, to put away their wives and children, that's the picture. It is not easy to give up sin, or we all would have done it years ago without a second thought. But there is sin that we are attached to. There is sin that we are married to and that we cling to. And Ezra, well, the Holy Spirit is saying you've got to put that sin away and be done with it. Spirit's desire for us is Yatsah. What do you mean? The Spirit's desire is to come out from. To, to come away from and be with Jesus. 
That, that's the deal, gang. The romance above all romance is the call of Christ to come away. Come away from the things of the world and come be with me. Mark 6.31 Oh, the apostles have been hard at work and they've been doing well and they've been doing ministry everywhere and they come back and they report to Jesus joyfully all their work and their effort and their toil for the Lord and He said to them, Come away. Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. You know what you find in the secluded place? You find that you can hear the Lord a lot better. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 10. The Beloved, a picture of Jesus says, Arise, My darling, My beautiful one, and come along. The winter has passed. The rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines and the voice of the turtle dove. The voice of the dove has been heard in our land. The Spirit of Christ says as we close the book of Ezra, come away with me. Come away. Father, it's the desire of my heart. And I cannot wait to hear those words loud and clear declared from the heavens, come away. Come up here. So I long for that day, Father. And I long to be with You. Jesus, I pray if we hear nothing else from tonight's teaching, we hear the voice of Your Spirit say, come away.